Good morning, everyone, <clears throat> and welcome to Valentine's Day. And the topic for today was think with your heart. And it could be subtitled, feel with your mind. Think with your heart, feel with your mind. And of course that on the one hand indicates that there's a separation between the heart and the mind. And we often do separate the two, but in our practice, there is a term called heart-mind. In Sanskrit, it's citta, where there is no duality between the heart and the mind. But today, I want to emphasize one dimension of that duality, and that is the dimension of the heart. Because in a certain way, the heart doesn't get enough attention. We live a lot in our heads, probably way more than we need to. We are probably in a constant state of generating concepts, telling stories, developing narratives, talking to ourselves. You know, if, if, we, if we saw somebody on the street talking to themselves out loud, we would think that they were a little nutty, but we talk to ourselves all the time internally. There's a lot of dialogue going on. <clears throat> Whether you think so or not, um, Buddhist practice, Zen practice, gives a priority to the heart. It's much less about the mind than it is about the heart. And it's in a way a lot harder to talk about the heart than it is to talk about the mind. So we don't talk too much about it. And because we don't talk too much about it, we have the sense that it's not that significant, but it is profoundly significant. In fact, there is another phrase in Zen practice, which generates an image of the jewel in the lotus. The jewel in the lotus. The lotus flower is the heart. The jewel is the mind, the clarity. And the lotus holds the jewel. It is fundamental. If you consider our teacher, our Buddha, he 
was motivated not to find the truth, not to find the intellectual truth. His journey, his search was not for the truth as we might understand it from a intellectual, rational, philosophical perspective. He wasn't a philosopher, he wasn't a physicist. <laughs> he was motivated to search for liberation. His motivation came from having left the palace in which he was raised to see someone who was old, someone who was sick, and someone who had died. In order, in, or, in other words, to witness the suffering in the world. And it was this suffering that he witnessed that called him to search for relief, to help relieve the suffering of beings. We could say that that is a kind of metaphor for all of us when we leave the comforts, the pleasures, the self-centered life of the palace where everything we've got nicely organized and we're comfortable and we're happy and we happen to venture out of that self-centered world and we experience the suffering, not only out there, but in here, that we venture into that territory. And our hearts, Buddha's heart was moved by what he experienced. And it was that sense of compassion for all beings, particularly for human beings, that led him on his search for liberation. Not particularly for truth. <laughs> so this was a heart journey, a care. Even in the moment of his enlightenment, he, his words were not Oh, I've discovered the truth. I now see reason has shown me what is true. No. The moment of enlightenment was when his ego fell apart. That palace <laughs> that we build we we can no longer inhabit and what he what he saw was that all beings are buddha he saw the beauty and the goodness of all beings the perfection of all beings and that's what motivated him to teach to help others 
discover their true perfection, their fundamental goodness. When he first um, awakened that morning, he saw the morning star, his one of his impulses was to simply become a hermit, <laughs> you know, just to live out his vision, to live out his insight. But his heart <laughs> spoke to him. It, it, he sometimes it's called Brahman or higher self, but it was really his heart that broke open and his compassion for beings led him to teach. It wasn't that he was promulgating reality or the truth for its own sake, just because, oh, I've discovered, you know, I've discovered the uh, relativity theory, or I've discovered which, uh, which of the, of the theories of the creation of the universe is actually true. No. He turned back into the world to help, to help, to help beings. And this came out of his heart, not out of his mind, not out of his intellect. So you can see here, even the very basic nature of our practice, it's a heart practice. It's an opening, it's awakening your heart. Not so much a perfecting of the mind. The perfecting of the mind is at the service of the awakened heart. It helps the heart find the skillful ways to help. That's what the mind's fundamental function is. Sure, it figures things out and it helps us navigate the world. But in our practice, there's a deeper, deeper dimension to it. Even in some of the what may be what may be seen as intellectual aspects of Zen practice, like koan practice, where you're given a mental puzzle, like what was your face before you were born? Or what is the sound of one hand clapping? Even those are not designed for intellectual resolutions. They are designed to break through the dominance of the mind, to get to a place where the mind just falls apart, where the mind reaches a dead end. And the heart has an opportunity to open. So our practice involves the mind, but it involves a mind which is empty. It's not identical with the brain. 
and it's not identical with reason. It's more identified with what we would call awareness. Pure big sky awareness. A mind that is open, receptive, is not closed down on fixed ideas, preconceptions, theories, narratives that crowd, crowd the emptiness, the openness, the availability of the mind. So this is the mind that rests, this is the jewel that rests in the lotus. And the heart isn't simply identified with the emotions. The heart is too full <laughs> for being reduced to simply an, a, a, an emotional state. So the jewel in the lotus is an empty mind in a full heart. An empty mind in a full heart. This is the fundamental aspect of our practice. Just look at the paramitas, the perfections of practice. Look at the Eightfold Path. Look at the precepts. Look at the four immeasurables, the Brahma Viharas, compassion, loving kindness, sympathetic joy, equanimity, generosity, patience, kindness. All of these are heart activities. Even meditation, concentration is located in the heart. We, we are guided by our, our, you might say, way-seeking, way-seeking mind, which is not an intellectual mind, but it's a heart mind. We seek the way out of a desire, out of a motivation to serve, to help, to support. That's why Sangha is one of the three jewels. What are we here for except to help one another? All of these features of our practice have very little to do with the intellect. Continuing to talk about the precepts, if I don't kill, 
or if I don't lie, or if I don't steal, am I refraining from doing those things because I'm obeying a precept? Here we are. Let's say we are, we are friends talking to each other. And it occurs to me that I could lie to you. Do I refrain from lying because I remember, oh, there's a precept that says I shouldn't lie. That would be a pretty meager motivation, wouldn't it? I'm just obeying a rule. <laughs> I don't lie to you because I care about you. Because I care about our relationship. <laughs> I don't kill a insect not because there's a precept against it, but because I have the sense that I'm caring for this life that deserves to be just as enduring as mine. So the precepts themselves are not um, sort of rational rules <laughs> that we should obey. They are more like descriptions of what we naturally do if our hearts were open. I care about you, I care about beings, I love you and I don't want to hurt you in any way. I don't want to take, it's not because I'm obeying a precept. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. So the precepts are not something we aspire to. They're not like ideals. that we have to work to achieve. They are descriptions of what we already are if we could just clear away the obstructions. We looked at the um, wheel of life, the obstructions right in the middle greed, anger, ignorance. So those obstructions, those things in our way of expressing who we really are, our fundamental goodness, our fundamental love for one another and all beings. If, if we could address those and see their emptiness, 
That is what it means to awaken our hearts. It's just awakening what we already have put to sleep. So much of our lives, we don't really feel the awakened heart because we're so much up here. It's, I think one of the Rinzai teachers talked about, this is a skin bag <laughs> that we're in. We're a kind of mind in a skin bag. <laughs> and the heart is something very different from that. And it's so rare that we actually feel it, that we feel its aliveness. It's kind of, it's kind of taken a second place to all the, the activity up here. Zen practice is about addressing all of this activity, finding the emptiness there so that this can express itself. That's one way our meditation practice is one way of reorienting ourselves, reconnecting with our hearts, with our loving kindness, with our compassion, with our sympathetic joy, and with our open-heartedness, our equanimity toward all beings. So how do we awaken, reawaken our hearts? <clears throat> One suggestion I have is that perhaps when we meditate, Many of us focus on our breathing and that's fine. But how about, how about focusing on our heartbeat, on our heart chakra and finding the life there? Not so much up here in our breathing or here in our Dantian, our abdominal area but also in this center, this heart center, which can open like a lotus and the jewel of the mind can rest in that open heart, in that open heartedness, that tenderness like a flower, which grows out of the mud all right but is soft, is open, is beautiful, and the jewel rests there. So more attention, more energy to go to our heart chakra.
I came across a little booklet among my collage materials. Can you all see this? It's a little booklet, very old. <laughs> is it is it a mirror image or can you you can see it directly? It's correct on our end, yeah. Okay, good. It's the art of kissing. It's really so sweet. And the the first sentence of this little pamphlet, which was, I'm try, trying to see what year it was, 1988. The dictionary says that a kiss is a salute made by touching with the lips pressed closely together and suddenly parting them. From this, it is quite obvious that although a dictionary may know something about words, it knows nothing about kissing. I would advocate kissing meditation in the same way that when I studied with Thich Nhat Hanh at a 300 person retreat in Virginia, 300 of us, at the very end of the retreat, he taught us hugging meditation. Most of the time, we hug not from our hearts, but from our arms or from our minds. And Thich Nhat Hanh related the story that when he started coming to the United States and he was leaving on a plane back to France, all the old ladies like me wanted to hug him because he's so, he's so huggable. But he didn't know how to hug because in Asian countries, Hugging isn't a common, a common activity. <laughs> Bowing is, is more like it. So he decided that he, if he was going to hug, he really needed to learn how. And so he developed his own hugging meditation practice. And it was a hugging from the heart, not from the arms, not from the head. And this is the way it went. And I hope you'll have a chance today and it, in the days to follow to practice this hugging meditation. The first part of it is the person who you're hugging with is to put your arms around them and to have the sense, and you may even say this 
softly to yourself. You are in my arms. You are in my heart. We have this moment together. It is a precious moment. And then separate. The second time you come together, hold each other, hold each other closely, not like this at a distance as a lot of people hug or not slapping the person on the back just to sort of make sure that they're there, <laughs> but really connect with them with trust and internally this moment of connection is very precious. I'm here, you're here. We may never have this moment again. We may never have this moment again together. So let's make the most of it. Let's make this connection deep. And then part. And the third stage of this hugging meditation is to come together and to understand deeply in your heart that this will be the last time. This will be the last time you will ever see this person again. Wow, how will that change the quality of your connection, because that is the truth. You will never see that person again, both figuratively and maybe literally. It may be the last. And so as you can imagine, there were 300 people in this Dharma center crying their eyes out <laughs> because they realized that they had no idea <laughs> how deep their heart connection was with one another. So today you have lots of opportunities, your children, your husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, teachers, <laughs> even COVID, do it with masks. And loving yourself, embracing yourself, having compassion for yourself. This is not, that's not self-centered. It's not egotistical. It's learning how to open your heart so that you can include all beings, starting with you, which is sometimes the hardest one, <laughs> the hardest one to embrace. Thank you. So my friends, um, 
let's dispense with the second gatha because we're, I talked a long time. So let's open for discussion and comments. If you want to speak, just put your palms together and unmute yourself. Mado, could you uh, pause, stop the recording? Yes.